that might seem a little bit of a strange reading for us to uh, use at a time like this, but really we're looking at a celebration of life. We are doing that. It's great for us to be able to celebrate the joy of life. We're filled with that sense of hope with little ones. We see them grow. We see them look to those who are the parents, carers, as the kind of source of hope, the source of security, the source of confidence. Uh, And one of the things that we see in that is that thriving when there is a healthy relationship, thriving when there is a sense of confident dependence. Isn't that a beautiful thing? When a little one is confidently dependent, we see them growing in a thriving, healthy, positive way. That's a great thing. And it's something maybe for us to reflect on when we come to the Bible, which speaks so often about children, about little ones. In fact, when we actually look at it on a number of key events in the history of the Bible, we see a child, a little one. We see, if in effect, the weak being used by God in mighty, powerful glorious ways. This one is a a little bit of an unusual situation. Uh, The child that is featured here, well, yes, certainly the child, but another child is mentioned. Um, But the child that is featured here is a little girl uh, who is taken as a slave girl. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 5, we've got the account of this man called Naaman. Naaman was a commander of the king of Aram. Uh, What do we know about Aram? It was uh, an opposer to God's people in Israel. It was around the area of Damascus. In fact, the Golan Heights, which we know now on our map of the Middle East, is the area of Aram. It's the place where uh, Naaman would have come from. Uh, And what we see is that he is a commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier. And then there's this little phrase right at the end, uh, four little words, but he had leprosy. Isn't that fascinating? That, That first verse, it captures the identity of this man called Naaman in an amazing way. It actually points out why he is who he is. You see what it says there? We see that he was all of these things. He was a mighty uh, warrior. He was uh, acclaimed. But the reason that he was acclaimed was because God had given him the victory. That's the first thing that we see there. Uh, And everything looks great apart from those four little words. If you imagine it like a seesaw, on one side of the seesaw, we've got the opening statements, which seem so incredibly weighty, don't they? They seem as though, for this guy, nothing in this world could touch him. He was at the pinnacle. He was incredibly important. He was powerful. He was significant. He was acclaimed. He was known by not just his masters, by all of the people, as being this hero leader. And that little phrase on the other side of the seesaw has all of the weight to outweigh all of that glory. 
He had leprosy. He had a condition which for him, all of that, everything that was weighed down on one side was at stake. That little indicator says that all of that is imminently lost. Leprosy at that time, in the Bible, there are all sorts of conjectures of what leprosy might have meant, what it was, all of those kind of things. I don't think we need to try and work it out. Here's the reality of what I think leprosy means in the Bible. It was known as being so highly contagious that that person was going to be separated from everybody else. All of the hopes, all of the dreams, all of the securities about being in a community was lost. They were separated out. They were banished. They would lose their families. They would lose their relationships. In in fact, their families would probably provide them uh, a little bit the way you see the leper stones out there, sorry, the the plague stones outside of small villages uh, in different parts of this country. They would be fed by food being left in a particular place uh, and they would be just cut off. Everything was at stake. We also see within this, this, uh, this great man, uh, Naaman, we also see running through this the thread of God's voice. Where is God's voice heard in this? Firstly, it's heard in that simple statement that all that Naaman had achieved was because God had been working in him. God had been allowing him to achieve everything that he had achieved. I think that says a lot, doesn't it, about how we understand the way the world works, how we understand God to be present in this world. Things that seem so contrary to the way it should be are actually worked out by a God who is weaving together a tapestry which is beyond our understanding, beyond our imagination, and yet here's the reality of God. At this particular point in history, allowing those who oppose his people to be victorious. But we see God's voice in another place. We see God's voice in verse 2, or at least the preparation for God's voice. Because raiding parties of the band of Aram had gone into Israel uh, and they had taken captive this young girl. I, I find it amazing because we don't, we don't even know her name. In one sense, the, the narrator is trying to make it that seemingly insignificant. She is a, a young girl who has been taken as a slave uh, and she's been taken captive and she is serving Naaman's wife. You think, ooh, isn't that amazing? This young girl has been taken... And it happens that she is placed in exactly the location which becomes astoundingly significant uh, to the rest of the story. She's taken uh, by a raiding party. There's another reality, isn't it? Uh, We live in a, by God's grace, by God's mercy, we live in a location both in history and in geography where at this moment in time, The fear of that is not something that we would experience, is it? Apart from the most extreme of situations, 
We do not fear our children being taken captive and taken into slavery. There are parts of the world where that is still a reality. The fear of that is still a reality. Uh, And for God's people at this point in time, that was a reality. This young girl has been taken. We don't know the circumstances. Perhaps she'd left that morning her usual routine of going to collect water, perhaps, and she just doesn't come back. The pain and the grief uh, of a family that is bereft, lost in, in, in that pain of losing a child, is contained in just that little phrase. Here she is, she's been taken by a raiding party, uh, a young girl, and yet she becomes essential to the way the story unfolds. Because she becomes the resolution in human terms to Naaman's problem, his seesaw problem. Everything's lost because of this. What am I to do? Look at the way she responds. We see it in verse 3. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Um, one of the things that the Bible does, and perhaps, perhaps uh, this could be helpful if you're reading the Bible at various times, what the Bible does is it throws in little statements of astounding faith in normal life. Uh, and here we have this astounding faith in this young girl as she's held captive, she's working in slavery, Uh, And yet she has the ability, she has the confidence in the God of her ancestors, in the God who she believes in, to be able to say in that situation, if only my master would seek out the prophet of my, the spokesperson of the God who I believe in, he would be healed. That's a remarkable statement, isn't it? It's remarkable in all sorts of ways. One, because she's prepared to say it as a slave girl. Two, that she actually is seeking the well-being, the good of Naaman. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? She's been taken into captivity. She's been taken as a slave. And her heart is to seek the good of the person who's taken her captive. Or she's ended up in the captivity of. In, In other words, her faith which is worked out just in these simple statements, is lived out in in the heart that she has, in her attitude towards people around her. Uh, Her love of God is being reflected in her love for those outside of her. In this case, she is the absolute pinnacle of example where Jesus says, love your enemies. (laughs) Love your enemies. How do I work out my love for my enemy? Well, how about this? How about if you're taken captive, taken into slavery, and then you seek the well-being of the one who has enslaved you? Isn't that a remarkable thing? Isn't it so uh, in kind of shadow term, in little throwing out ideas, preparing us for the gospel of Jesus? That the way that we live out our love of Jesus, our love of God in Jesus is to express that love outwards to those... We've been looking at this for the past months, haven't we, in Peter. In a sense, that she's living it even before Jesus 
has walked the earth. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? What we see beyond that is a number of strange responses. We see a strange route for the message. We see a strange plan. We see a strange response. We see a strange outcome. I've gone through them quick. I'll pick it up as we go along. Firstly, a strange route for the message. Firstly, the message comes from a slave girl for the well-being of Naaman. But how does it come? She speaks to her master, the wife. Uh, And that gets through the chain of communication. She gets the message. She realizes the message gets from this nameless child to the wife and finally it arrives with Naaman. That's the first strange route for the message. The second, I'm going to call it a strange plan. But I think you'll probably be with me when it might be strange, but it's totally normal as well. Here's what she has in her mind. If my master, Naaman, would go and see the prophet in Samaria, that's what she's already said, if, she'd go, if he'd go and see the prophet in Samaria, he would be healed. The message comes through to Naaman, and what, how does it work out? Well, we can see Naaman went to his master and told him that the girl from Israel, what the girl from Israel had sent. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. So, from a desire to be healed, from hearing a message which is to go to the spokesman of God, what we end up with is high-level talks. High-level talks. He goes to his boss, the king, and the king says, by all means, go. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to write you a letter. I'm going to give you a whole load of uh, amazing gifts that you can take with you, and you go and see the king. Wow, that is a strange plan in the light of the message, isn't it? It's strange, but you know, I think it's totally normal. It's totally normal, guys, isn't it, for us to, in all sorts of situations, go to the high-level plan. You know, ignore the simplicity of the message. Don't do the humble thing, but let's communicate with those of importance. That's what we see going on in Naaman. High-level relationships. The king gives him the gifts. He goes then to the king of Israel. The king of Israel gives a strange response in one sense. Strange in this way. If we read what he actually says, let's read it. Uh, In verse 7, as soon as the king of Israel read the letter... He tore his robes and said, am I God? I think that's strange in this way. And it's a bit of a contrast. Here's a little girl who is in slavery, who knows that the hope of life is in the spokesperson of God. Naaman goes, firstly, a high-level relationship, goes to the king who doesn't have the same response as this little slave girl. 
His response should be, do you know what? Essentially, I know a man who can. (laughs) I, I know where to send you. This slave girl knew exactly where the presence and blessing of God was in her country that she had left. It was in the spokesman of God, the prophet in Samaria. And yet the king of Israel doesn't recognize that. And his response is absolute terror. He immediately feels as though this is not a response or this is not an opportunity for God to be exalted. This is an opportunity for me to be terrified. That's that's what he feels. I am being tricked here because am I God? In other words, he knows who can heal, doesn't he? He knows that he can't. He knows who can. And you would expect his response to be, am I God? No, but I know the one who I can send you to who can be that mediating relationship between God who we worship. Uh, but, But what he does is he's terrified. He tears his robes and he basically is fearful. This is a trick. He's come to me. I'm sending you, I'm giving you this Uh, demand that you cure me. Can I bring him back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? He's trying to pick a quarrel with me. That's the way his mind goes. I'm terrified. This isn't actually about Naaman, who actually was stood in front of him at this point and would have been presenting genuinely as somebody with leprosy was stood in front of him, and his mind does not go to the hope of God. His mind goes to human fear. What a contrast with the simple faith of this young child. What a contrast. It seems somehow, we don't know how, perhaps conversation has gone on. I I really love the way the Bible subliminally reminds us of the pace of life during its day compared to our day. You know, um, this would all take place very, very quickly now, wouldn't it? Naaman would turn up, he'd get the negative response from the king, he'd jump back on the plane and he'd be back at Aram within a few hours. The reality is that his journey is halted, he's held in the presence of the king, he's nearby. Elisha, the man of God, hears The message gets through to him. He heard the news that the king of Israel had torn his robes and he sent this message. Why have you torn your robes? I think that's such a probing question, isn't it? Why have you torn your robes? Why? You know what the problem is. You know what the solution can be. Why have you torn your robes? I think that's a a powerful little phrase there from Elisha, isn't it? It's a challenge to all of us at various times who believe in Jesus. And maybe what he's saying to the king is essentially, do you know what? You should know better. You really should know better. You've defaulted to your natural first point. You've not stopped. You've not paused. You've not seen the reality of hoping God Just, why have you done that? We need to hear that sometimes, don't we? Why have you? Why have I? 
emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. Why have I torn my robes? Why have I done that? Why do I at times tear my robes rather than pausing and saying, hope is in God? In the worst of situations, why is my response very often, firstly, to tear my robes in desperation or fear or anger or frustration or whatever other expression there might be? Why do I do that? Because my first thoughts are not the first thoughts of a, uh, of a little girl who is a slave girl who has faith in God. That's why my first reaction is to, metaphorically speaking, tear my robes first. Because I, I think that this is something that we, we learn, don't we? That in, and maybe the writer to the Hebrews suggests this. You, you've forgotten. You've forgotten what it was first like. You live now um, forgetting the vibrancy of young faith. You've grown accustomed to it. It's normal to you now. And you're filling in all of the gaps with the realities of this world rather than the reality of God. And what you're inclined to do now is to tear your robes rather than to place your hope in God. I wonder what the king of Israel's response was. was it, deep down when he heard that, what are you doing? Why are you doing that? Make the man come to me and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. That was key, wasn't it? That was what was at the root of this. Here's the issue, king of Israel. Here's what's at stake. Is our God the true living God. That's what's at stake. Send him here and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Can you imagine? Elisha, prophets at Cass, even in those days, not rich. And uh, he's just there at whatever house it was. We don't know the detail of what kind of house, but you envision the grandeur of this visitation pulling up at the front door. Chariots, horsemen, this massive gathering at the front door, and Elisha is sat inside, and his response, he'll send out a messenger. Here's the message. Important person pulls up outside your front door and you know they're coming. Who opens the door? The cat? <laughs> You're there, aren't you? You're prepared for the important visitor and yet Elisha's response is go wash yourself through the messenger. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Naaman was furious. There are a whole load of strange responses, aren't there, in that? He's furious. He's turned up with all of the grandeur of his position. He's gone to the king. He feels probably by this point as if he's been bounced from pillar to post. You have one of those conversations on the telephone to a company and you get through to one person and they say, you're through to the wrong department, let me pass you on to someone else. And he's probably by this point feeling that I'm being bounced around. Who am I speaking to here? 
Is there anybody going to do anything? And then all I get is this messenger telling me to go and dip myself in the filthy Jordan when we've got much nicer rivers back at home. If it was simply a case of washing myself, I could have done it back there. He is absolutely livid because he has not learned the message yet. He has not gained the teaching that he needs to take hold of this. He disappears, turns round in a rage and heads back home. And there's a strange outcome. The servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have done it? Oh, absolutely. Because you, were, you see, a great act is befitting of a great man. That's what he's thinking. A great act is befitting of a great man. I'd have done anything great to resolve this problem, but you want me to do something really tiny and something really small and something incredibly humbling. That's what you want me to do. Would you have done it? But how much more then if he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he did go and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan and he was clean and he was restored. And the the narrator adds in a brilliant little phrase here. In verse 14, we see this. His flesh was restored and he became clean. And became clean like that of a young boy. I think that is genius. There's this young girl that has spoken to him. And it's only when he becomes humbled that he becomes fresh like a young boy again. What's gone on? What are the key points? Firstly, God is the enactor. Verse 7, verse 1, God is the Lord who gives him the power to overthrow God's people. Verse 7, we read that, uh, am I God? The king of Israel says. God finally is the enactor of healing. Verse 14 and verse 15, we see the man of God is the one who intervenes. Again and again and again, we see that God is the enactor in all of this. But I think the other thing that we see is that humility is at the center of this. Every step, every step of instruction to Naaman comes from his inferiors. Isn't that amazing? Every step of instruction. It comes from a young child, a young girl. It comes from Elisha's servant. It comes from his servants. Again and again, we see Naaman getting finally the message from his inferiors to do something really tiny. And at that point, he is healed. What is his response? Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and he said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept the gift from your servant. We're going to, the story goes on, you can 
read it at home and see how it develops. But the issue is this. I would suggest this. That at some point when this world ends and eternity breaks in and there are those who trusted in the God of the Bible who are saved for all of eternity, there is going to be the opportunity one day for those who also will be there to speak to Naaman. Because the outcome of this is that he became a believer in the God of Israel. How did he become a believer in the God of Israel? The narrator says it. The way that he became a believer in the God of Israel was when he became childlike. His flesh became like a child. His childlikeness is expressed in his humble dependence on simplicity, on seeming human nothingness. What has all this got to do with the thanksgiving? A dedication like this afternoon, this. We read this. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And there's the key. Every single one of us in our human attitude, to a greater or lesser extent, are way more like Naaman. We work with the idea that we've got to be acceptable to God and we can achieve it by doing grand things because we're grand people. (laughs) And Jesus says, and this story says, that the way that we finally come into relationship with God is when we become joyfully dependent on Him. What does it take to become a Christian? What does it take to gain life? We'll ask that question of Naaman first. Naaman, what did it take for you to gain life? Really? It was nothing. All I did was I went into the water and I dipped down seven times and I came up and I was, that's it. Okay, I had to be, I had to be seen by all my entourage going down and dipping in the Jordan, which was initially, that was a struggle because after all, I am who I am. But when I realized that it was really about listening to the voice from people who were humbly trying to help me, and all I needed to do was humble myself, and that was it. There was life. And it clicked. And then I knew that life wasn't in the voice of all of these servants. Life was in the God who was speaking through them. What does it mean to be a believer in Jesus? What does it mean to gain life? It is exactly the same. It is exactly the same. It's actually realizing that, that what I have to do is not a huge thing. I have to believe in Jesus. And to be honest, that takes something. 
because I, I'm somebody within my family relationships, within my workplace, within wherever else it might be. And, and there's a moment that I have to cross over for them to see me being humbled. <laughs> but then after all, what Jesus said and what I've learned to hear is this. I've learned that I've got to become like a little child. That means that faith in him is, it's all about being joyfully dependent on him. I'm stripped of any, any ability to save myself. That is actually a great thing. It's freeing. It is liberating. I'm not actually depending on myself for my salvation. All I have to do is believe in that Jesus. That's all I have to do. It's nothing more. It changes everything. It means that I start behaving more like the slave girl who's got confidence in the God of the Bible rather than confidence in myself, even in the most extreme of situations, who loves people in a remarkable way. There's all sorts of things that change little by little, but fundamentally it is this. It's about me prepared to be really humble and to trust in the God who says, believe in me and you will be saved. That's a great message, isn't it? That's why I love the opportunity on afternoons like this when we have a little life in front of us who is reminding us, held up in front of us again and again, reminding us of joyful dependence. There is no way that Jacob can nip into the kitchen and put the kettle on and cook his tea for tonight. There is a joyful dependence. And that's just what we see as a model of faith in Jesus.